FaithTalk 570 WTBN Pinellas Park and 910 WTWD Plant City. It's time for Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. To prove his point, Paul gives us his biography, as I said, as it pertains to his gospel preaching of faith in Christ. Paul divides his life into three periods of time. He tells us, first of all, about his life before his conversion, what he was like before he was saved. Then he tells us his actual conversion, and these two points of his life we'll see this week. Then we'll look at the third time period in Paul's life, and that is his life after his conversion as it related to the gospel. Welcome to Verse by Verse, a daily radio Bible class with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. We're studying Chapter 1 of the book of Galatians, where the Apostle Paul defends the message of salvation by faith alone in Christ and his authority as an apostle to proclaim this message. Today and for the next couple lessons, we'll be looking at Paul's life story and how he received the message he was taking all over the Roman Empire. The point he is making in telling his story is to show how his simple gospel message of salvation by faith didn't come from any human source or even from any of the other apostles who had walked with Jesus during his earthly ministry. It came directly from Christ himself. Personal stories can be highly persuasive. TV commercials use them to great effect. So do Christians when we witness. We often follow the example of the blind man in John 9 who simply told people what Jesus had done for him. And that's Paul's method as he urges the believers in Galatia to quit listening to false teachers and return to the true gospel. Here's Pastor Steve. It was A.W. Tozer, the well-known Christian author and pastor, who once said, Next to the Holy Scriptures, the greatest aid to the life of faith may be Christian biographies. I agree with that. I agree with Tozer's statement. Christian biographies have the power to impact our lives deeply for Christ. Consider how many Christians have been influenced to serve our Lord because of the missionary biographies of men like William Carey and John Payton or women like Mary Slessor of Nigeria and Amy Carmichael of India. Likewise, we could say that the stories of the heroes of the faith like Calvin and Luther, Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, have spurred countless believers on to try to emulate their godliness in following Christ as they once did. But of all the biographies that have been written about Christian leaders over the years, none is more important than the life story of the Apostle Paul. More biographical information has been written about Paul in the New Testament than anyone else other than Jesus. The thrilling accounts of Paul's conversion to Christ from a legalistic Pharisee who hated Jesus and persecuted the church to an apostle who risked his life for the cause of Christ is found in the book of Acts, and it is mentioned by Paul several times in his New Testament letters. Now, this morning, we have come to one of those times that Paul speaks of his biographical sketch in Galatians chapter 1. So let's turn there. Galatians chapter 1, and I want to read to you, starting at verse 13, what Paul says about his life story. He writes this, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, 
How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now, in what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Now, as we noted last week, Paul never gives personal information about himself just because he enjoys speaking about himself. He never does it for the sake of hearing himself write or hearing himself talk about himself. He always has a clear purpose in mind, and that's the case here. Whenever he shares his testimony about coming to faith in Christ, he has a purpose, he has an objective, he has a goal in mind. That is certainly the case in his biographical sketch here found in Galatians 1. As you'll recall, the background of Galatians is that false teachers, commonly known as Judaizers, because they said one must have to become a Jew before you became a Christian, so they're called Judaizers, had infiltrated the churches of Galatia, come down from Jerusalem to them, and attacked the Apostle Paul. They said he's a fraud, a fraudulent apostle, claiming that Paul preached a corrupt gospel, an inaccurate gospel message of salvation in Christ by faith alone. And Paul's defense up to this point in his letter to the Galatians, which we've only taken up to verse 12, is that he's boldly stated two things. He's defended himself by stating two things. Number one, he stated that he most definitely is a true apostle. He's a true apostle called and commissioned by God alone, and he makes it a point to say, apart from any human involvement, man played no part in in his calling to be an apostle. He said in verse 1, Paul, an apostle not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And he means by this through Jesus Christ and God the Father alone, who raised him from the dead. That's the first line of defense. Secondly, he stated that his gospel message of justification by faith alone, that is salvation by faith alone in Christ, was revealed to him directly by God, also apart from any human involvement. He stated this, as we saw last week in verses 11 and 12. Now, I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this is where we left off last week, with Paul saying that God revealed the gospel to him apart from any human intervention. It was divine. Its origin is divine. He was unique in that he received revelation unlike the way we do. We receive it through reading the Bible. Paul didn't do that. Now, Paul, though, is not content to leave it at that because, after all, anyone can say that God has spoken to them, right? 
I mean, there, there have been religious quacks and con artists over the years who have said God has spoken to them. They claim to speak prophetically for him when the reality is they're simply liars and self-deceivers who have tried to deceive us. They know God hasn't spoken to them, but they try to deceive us. Well, Paul wasn't one of those religious quacks. Paul was a legitimate, genuine apostle, and the message he gave about Christ and salvation by grace was revealed to him directly by God, and he was determined to prove it. He was determined to prove it, that he was telling the absolute truth. And to accomplish this, Paul tells the Galatians, note this, he tells them his life story as it pertains to the gospel. That's what he's doing here in chapter 1. See, Paul's purpose in doing this is to convince the Galatians that it was impossible for him to have invented this message of grace. Absolutely impossible. He couldn't have done it by himself. He couldn't have received it from any man. He could not have even received it, as we'll see next week, from another apostle. His entire life story cries out against any man coming alongside of Paul and giving the gospel to him. And so, to prove his point, Paul gives us his biography, as I said, as it pertains to his gospel preaching of faith in Christ. And folks, here's the way he does it. It's it's really outlined for us in the text. Paul divides his life into three periods of time. He tells us, first of all, about his life before his conversion, what he was like before he was saved. Then he tells us his actual conversion, and these two points of his life we'll see this week. Then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at the third time period in Paul's life, and that is his life after his conversion as it related to the gospel. So let's get into our text, see what God has to say in his word, and what we see is the first time period of Paul's life that he writes about is this, his pre-conversion days. Verse 13 and then 14 say this, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Now, Paul begins to present his argument that he did not receive the gospel from any man by writing about his former life as a zealous Jewish religious leader. That's what Paul was before coming to faith in Christ. And there are two things that the apostle tells us about his former life in Judaism. And these two things serve as irrefutable arguments that the message of grace that he now preached was revealed to him by God. First of all, he tells us that in his former life as a leader in Judaism, he was a persecutor of the church of God. He writes, for you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God. The Galatians knew what kind of a person Paul was. Remember, he's writing here, for you have heard of my former manner of life. Paul never hid his past from those he preached to. He was very transparent about his his past. It was a difficult past. Difficult past. In Acts 23, we learn that not only was Paul a religious Jewish leader, Paul was actually a Pharisee. Pharisees were the most religious Uh, zealous sect in Judaism of that time. 
There are no Pharisees, to my knowledge today, in terms of a name. There, there's no branch of Judaism that I'm aware of that calls itself Pharisee. By the way, that word simply means separated ones. But Paul would be the equivalent of the ultra, ultra Orthodox today, those who are called Hasidic Jews. You've seen pictures of them from Israel. There's also neighborhoods in New York City. The Hasidic Jews, that would be what, what Paul was, if not in dress, certainly in spirit. But you may not realize this. Paul, in Acts 23, says that not only was he a Pharisee, he claims that he was a son of a Pharisee, meaning his dad was a Pharisee. Paul was raised to be a Pharisee. That was the plan of his parents from his birth, which is very interesting because what that means is that Paul was the only professional theologian amongst all of the apostles. The rest of the apostles were fishermen, or in Matthew's case, a, um, a tax collector. But Paul was a trained theologian, a brilliant man. And because he was so committed to Jewish Phariseeism, with its emphasis on keeping the law as a means of salvation, he couldn't stomach it when he heard that some Jewish people had abandoned traditional Judaism for faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And so he reacted violently. He reacted violently by persecuting the church, which in the early days, remember, church was only made up of Jewish converts who he considered to be traitors to their religion. Now, specifically, how did Paul demonstrate his commitment to traditional salvation by works Judaism and his animosity for any Jewish person who abandoned it. Notice this. He says, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Now, I think most of us who are familiar with the New Testament would uh, be familiar with the fact that Paul persecuted the church before he was saved. I'm not sure all of us understand the depth of that persecution, the hatred this man had. He was a violent persecutor. He was a man who was raving with anger at the church. His reaction to the gospel of Christ was intense, and it was violent. Notice this. When Paul says that his persecution was beyond measure, it means that he was excessive in his mistreatment of Christians. In other words, he did more than anyone in his circle of Pharisees expected him to do in persecuting Christians. None of them liked Christians. Paul hated them. Paul went beyond any of his contemporaries in despising and persecuting Christians. It's exactly what the book of Acts tells us about Paul's reaction to those Jewish people who believed in Jesus. He was furious in his rage against them. Listen to Acts 8.3. His name, by the way, before he worked amongst the Gentiles was Saul, Saul of Tarsus. That's where he was from. We read this, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. This man was so obsessed and so persistent in opposing the gospel that he actually went through the neighborhoods in the city of Jerusalem, entering homes, rounding up every Jewish person that he discovered believed in Jesus, and he would throw them in prison. Husband and wife would be eating a meal, family, Paul, with the Jewish authorities. If he found out they were Christians, would burst into their home, drag one, if not both of them, off to prison. 
Understand this, Paul's goal, though, was not simply to incarcerate these Jewish Christians in order to just, you know, put a little scare into them, throw them in prison until they learn their, their lesson, then return to traditional Judaism and have them released. No, Paul's objective in throwing them into prison was to kill them. Kill them. To exterminate every Jewish man and woman who believed in Jesus. Why do I say that? Because years later, in Acts 26.10, as Paul is giving his testimony to a man called King Agrippa, here's what he said. Acts 26.10. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. In other words, what he's saying is this. When these Christians were brought up on charges of blasphemy and the vote was taken in the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Israel, of which we would assume Paul was a member, I cast my vote for them to be put to death. I said, yes, kill them. That was Paul. We know that Paul was very much involved in the stoning to death of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. We read in Acts 7 that those who stoned Stephen laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. So it would appear that that Paul actually oversaw Stephen's death. He wasn't just there. He was the leader. He was the man leading the charge against Stephen, this great man of God. But listen, Paul didn't merely want to kill Christians. He wanted to kill the entire movement of Christianity. He wanted to wipe it off of the planet. That's why we said in Galatians 1.13, notice this. He said, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure, and notice this, folks, and tried to destroy it. Persecuted the church with the goal of destroying it. Paul wanted to stamp out the entire church, every believer on the planet meaning he wanted every Christian killed and the whole religion of Christianity eliminated. That was Paul's goal. Paul was just a madman on the loose, a a religious zealot hunting down every Christian he could find so that he could destroy all who rejected his religious beliefs for faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And note this, in his zeal for Judaism, he was driven to travel to other cities. He traveled to other cities outside of Jerusalem with the hopes of tracking down believers in order to bring them back to Jerusalem and have them punished by death. Let me show you this. Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we read verses 1 and 2. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters for him to the synagogues at Damascus. That's in Syria, modern-day Syria. So that if he found out any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Then we look at Acts 26. Acts 26, that passage I just referred to in which he's speaking to King Agrippa. In verse 11, we read this. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Paul went to foreign cities to look for Jewish Christians to bring them back to Jerusalem and have them put to death. So the first thing that Paul tells us about his former life in Judaism was that in his pre-conversion days, he used to persecute the church of God. Intense, violent, murderous. The question is this, what does Paul's persecution of Christians have to do 
with Galatians 1, proving that the gospel of grace was revealed to him by God. Why is he telling us this? What's the point of knowing this? Well, it's really very simple. Paul was such a fanatic in his opposition to the gospel of grace that it is obvious that God is the only one who could have convinced him to change his mind and believe the gospel of grace. There is no way that Paul, then known as Saul, would have allowed any Christian to get close enough to him to witness to him. So, when these false teachers, these Judaizers, accuse him of receiving his gospel from some past school of thinking or even from some current teacher, that's nonsense. They're so wrong. It's, it's just ridiculous. Paul hated the gospel of grace. He tried to destroy it, not embrace it. That is ludicrous to say that Paul got this gospel from man. He hated the gospel he heard from men. But there's a second thing in addition to persecuting the church that serves as irrefutable proof that Paul received his gospel message from God. Notice verse 14. He writes, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries amongst my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. And in this statement, Paul tells us that before his conversion to Christ, he was advancing in Judaism beyond any of his contemporaries, meaning this, that he was rapidly rising through the ranks of all the young Pharisees who were looking to get ahead in the system. In other words, he was on his way to being considered the number one and the greatest Pharisee of his day. In fact, Paul was making so much progress in climbing the ladder of success that he was even more radical than his teacher. I say that because in Acts 22.3, Paul is put in a place of defending himself before a Jewish mob in the city of Jerusalem. In his defense, he reveals to them that he was raised in that city. He was educated in that city. He was not born in Jerusalem, but he was raised in Jerusalem, educated under a man by the name of Rabbi Gamaliel. Gamaliel was the leading, if not the most prominent Jewish rabbi of that day. And Paul was his student. That was a great honor. That would be like in secular circles saying, I I went to Yale, I went to Harvard, I went to Princeton. It's just the cream of the crop. Paul was trained by Gamaliel. Rabbi Gamaliel, interestingly enough, is mentioned in Acts chapter 5 as a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling Jewish council. Their word was law. And we read in Acts 5 that at a meeting, Gamaliel stands up and he cautions the rest of his council members to leave the apostles alone. They've beaten the apostles. They have forbid them to preach in the name of Jesus. Peter stands up and said that we have to obey God rather than men. They don't know what to do with these apostles. They're afraid of putting them to death because a lot of people are following them. So Gamaliel stands up and here's what he says. If this plan or action is of men, meaning this Christianity bit is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it's of God, He said, you will not be able to overthrow it or else you may be found fighting against God. Those are wise words. He's saying, if God is in this movement and this message about Jesus, there's nothing you can do to stop it. So just sit back and see what happens. That's very wise counsel. 
Those were not only wise words from Rabbi Gamaliel, they were prophetic. Despite constant attempts to crush the good news, 2,000 years later we see that he was absolutely right. The message of salvation by faith in Christ is alive today and still bringing salvation to people all over the world. Thanks for joining us today for Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Pastor Steve's one-verse-at-a-time teaching ministry at Lakeside gives us not only the content of these radio Bible classes, but also the name of the program. We invite you to listen to today's class again by going online to our website, versebyverseradio.org. Click on Message Archive. Uh, There are many other programs available for free download as well. That's versebyverseradio.org. Verse by Verse is a ministry of Lakeside Community Chapel, located at 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater, Florida. If the Lord burdens your heart to help support this ministry financially, we would be very grateful for your obedience to His leading. Just go to our website, versebyverseradio.org, and click the Giving tab. This is Jerry Peterson. Next time on Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve Kreloff will show us just how unlikely it would have been for Paul to have invented on his own the message of salvation by faith in Christ alone. I hope you can join us. Encouraging you in Christ. Long before the pain, God was there. Long before the struggle, God was there. Someone want to ask somebody that was going through a trial, this is where was God when the tragedy happened? The answer was the same place he was when it was all good. Faith Talk 570 and 910 WTBN.